0: On this episode of the Survival Dispatch Podcast with Chris Heaven, I'm joined by Dr. Jennifer Stankus from the TV show Surviving Man, and we're going to be discussing tips for new preppers. Jen, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thanks, Chris. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh,
0: I'd like to mention that uh, Jen is a veteran of two branches of our military, Military, pardon me, an attorney, as well as being a doctor. Uh, Jen, before we dive into prepping stuff, could you give our listeners a, a short bio?
1: Sure. So I feel like I've lived probably five lifetimes in my almost 54 years, but um, I graduated early from high school. I was always into the outdoors and survival and that sort of thing. And um, always wanting to be independent and be able to to do whatever I wanted to do without anyone else's help, um, just because I, I found that very limiting. So I started off as a, an explorer scout with the Boulder County Sheriff's Department, okay. I did a lot of training with the with the SWAT team and patrol and uh, kind of mission command when we had a, a big incident and really learned a ton from that. And then started college at 18 in Hawaii and wow. worked as an intern with what is now ICE and the U.S. Marshals Service. Went back to Colorado where I grew up, um, and went through the police academy, and sort of worked my way through college as while working as a police officer. Um, finally finished that up and did some mountain rescue, ski patrols, <laughs> and then went to law school. Um, and in between there, I was also <laughs> in the, the Naval Reserve for eight years and and worked as a a Navy medic and um, military police. And uh, finished law school and then joined the army as a JAG officer. I worked for a little bit as a part-time military judge. I went through airborne school. Wow! <laughs> um, and then got out and went back to medical school and, and became an emergency physician after that. So I, I feel like I've done a lot in my years and, and yep. I have a lot of experience and knowledge to pass on to other people.
0: Uh, the first question that comes to mind is, have you decided what you want to be when you grow up?
1: <laughs> <laughs> uh, no. Uh, I first of all, I haven't grown up. And, and second of all, no, there's just the way I've lived my life is that I just want to continue to learn and continue to grow. And that's really pushed me in a lot of different directions.
0: You know, that's really interesting. Uh, you know, I firmly believe that we don't necessarily attract what we want. We attract what we are and you know we've we know our audience pretty well survival dispatch and, and we know that overwhelmingly uh, they have a penchant for learning they want to learn new stuff and that's whether it's new followers or people been with survival dispatch for years so it's kind of interesting that you share that you know same penchant for learning so you know the topic today is you know getting new preppers off the x getting them started and so in and you're a prolific prepper. You know, I'll let you go expand on that topic, but what's the best starting point for new preppers in your opinion?
1: You know, I think the the starting point is just thinking about it, right? So um before you take action, you really want to think. You don't want to just t- to make a knee-jerk reaction. You want to think about things. So for me, if I'm thinking about um prepping the first thing is, what am I prepping for? Um, okay. And then the second thing is, okay, well, well, what am I? What am I doing? And um, I think that a lot of people, you know, they'll get an idea and they'll throw money at something, and then they're like, well, that's not exactly what I wanted to do. So I think being efficient and thinking about what is it that you're trying to accomplish is is the first step.
0: That I, that's actually um, extremely good. Uh, advice Uh, Jason Sawyer who's one of our top influencers um, he did a video recently and it was on emergency preparedness and he said based on your geography that should determine you know what you should be preparing for what your prep should be so you know if, if you're in the Gulf states or Florida here you know preparing for hurricane season and which you know can have catastrophic consequences if you're in Oklahoma being prepared say for tornadoes and hailstorms you know if you're in the northeast being prepared for snowstorms all these different different types of emergency situations so yeah that's interesting that you would would have the same perspective as Jason as far as you know uh, prepping for something that's applicable having a having a reason a purpose that actually rings true
1: Yeah. And, you know, it's interesting. We split our time between Washington state, Western Washington state and Nevada and the two, the two areas are absolutely opposite. So in Washington state, there is absolutely zero issue with water for us, but here in Nevada, water is a huge issue. It's the biggest. issue. And so, you know, how we prepare in one home versus the other is completely different Um, And also just in terms of, you know, one being very rural versus one being um, in the city and 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 how do you prepare for for those two things just from like. a, Let's just say a civil unrest situation, totally different.
0: Yeah, very different. Uh, We were just out in Washington state and, uh, you know, beautiful part of the country. I don't know that I could uh, live there with the, you know, limited amount of sunshine compared to what we're used to here in the southeast. But as you were saying, I was thinking to myself, you know, we do a lot of, uh, you know, testing on power stations and solar panels and whatnot. And I have one sitting outside right now um, that's this little portable guy that you could take hiking, you know, or, you know, take it on your bike if you're mountain biking and stuff like that. And it's got this little fold up solar panel. And even in the strong Florida sunlight, this, this solar panel is rated for 40 watts. So it's, it's nothing extreme. Then of course, the, the angle, the declination of the sun really makes massive difference, right? Like if you take the, the, the solar panels that have kickstands on them and you fold them out, you can move them, you know, an inch. And, you know, they can go up, say 20, 30 watts in what their output is. But this little jobby that I'm testing right now, I can't get it to go over 20 watts, no matter what I do. And that we're talking 100% full Florida sunshine. Reason I mention it is because when we were in Washington, um, I wear, a I wear a Garmin watch that's solar powered. And if I'm outdoors enough in the sun, if I, if I charge this from the wall, it's you know say 25 to 30 days battery life but if i'm outdoors in the sun it has a solar indicator on it. it tells me how much it's charging and i couldn't get much of a charge while i was in washington state you know just because it was overcast and the, the ironic thing is is that we were at a farmers market um oh just south of Puget sound and there was this ginormous billboard that said don't believe that you can't charge you, you can't charge with solar panels in Washington state. And I was thinking to myself, well, yeah. Okay. So you get one or 2%, but <laughs> the, the, they were kind of implying that solar was still a good investment in Washington state. And I personally don't think that's the case, but.
1: I couldn't agree more. <laughs> I would not invest in that. And yeah, yeah. Uh I'm with you.
0: I, I know a guy uh, who specializes in finding uh remote property and building bunkers and all that kind of stuff. And he he won't recommend a property to his wealthier clients that doesn't have running water through it because everything for him is predicated on hydroelectricity as opposed to solar and other forms.
1: You know, one of the things that I find interesting, you know, there is one form of wind power that I think is great, and that is the windmill. The reason why we expanded across the plain states and have the the farming and um and such that we have is because of the invention of the windmill and what the windmill did is it allowed for people to um, essentially drill for water and to um, and to mill the grains and that sort of thing and it was an absolutely brilliant invention and one of the things that I was thinking is if I were to go off the grid first of all having your own well system is super important because you have a guaranteed uh, guaranteed clean water and a, and a water source. So yeah. having something that runs through your 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 property isn't necessarily necessary, but having your own water, I think, if you're going to be off the grid is. And a windmill, I just think, is brilliant.
0: So good, good choice of words, by the way. So a, a windmill and a wind turbine are not the same thing. So when you look at these big turbines, uh, there was a project in upstate New York years ago where they put a bunch of them out in Lake Ontario, and I'm not sure if they're still operating or not. There were, were a lot of complaints, uh, you know, from people that there was this constant background noise, uh, so damage to birds and you know migratory habits and all that kind of stuff. But the big, big turbines, um, they require more energy to be expended to. You know, uh, mine the material and then turn the material into steel or aluminum and then to machine it. Then those wind turbines will ever generate in their entire life. So it, it's a net loss at the end of the day. It'd be they'd be further off ahead using the energy they expended on making the wind turbines into doing something else. But a windmill and a wind turbine are not the same thing. I have a friend who has a cabin off the grid and he's a farmer. And he has a windmill, an old-style windmill, and he has solar, and it all feeds the same group of batteries, and he's 100, his cabin's 100% off the grid. So, you know, if, if we, we agree that the, the, the starting point for new preppers is to be prepared for whatever's most applicable in your locality, your geography sort of thing, what, what are some of the other things? And you already hit on one of them, water, but maybe you could expand on the topic of water a bit simply because it's, it's so critical. Yeah.
1: I mean, so, you know, we can, we can live without food for several weeks. Um, We may not like it, but you can, you can survive without food for probably several weeks, unless you're mean, you don't have any fat. fat. (laughs) (laughs) But, um, but without water, only a few days without air, obviously only a few minutes. So, you know, Having a clean source of water is super important. Obviously, if your water is contaminated and that makes you sick, um, your survival is not going to be very good if you're vomiting and have diarrhea and other right. other waterborne illnesses. So um, a clean source of water is super, super important. What's, um, it's got to be high, uh, really high on your list.
0: So uh, just out of curiosity, I mean, in the two locations that you have, what 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 are your um preps as far as water is concerned
1: so we actually have our own well in washington um water is abundant there you could have a catch water system and then uh if if you have you know a lot of rainfall you can have a catch water system we have a well that is um is is driven by electricity but that's driven by um, natural gas, which we have a a tank for. Okay. So I mean, not everyone has that ability. Um, the other thing we have is 250 gallon water drums. Um, and I'll just be honest, we're not as well prepared in our home in Nevada because we haven't been here as long, but we we have drums of water that we can use. And then the other thing that I have in both places always is some sort of filtration system. Even if it's just a straw, one of those straws yep. that, that you can drink from anywhere from. But like the water here in Nevada is horrible. I wouldn't drink the water. We really? have a reverse we have a reverse osmosis system. Okay. Um, but you know, a lot of the water coming out of these reservoirs and, and water systems anymore, they still are able to detect drugs and things like that. And one of the ways that they um they detect the level of even COVID and and other uh, viruses is to look at the wastewater and the amount of virus in the wastewater. It's really hard to get rid of um, things that are at that small micron level. And so having some sort of filtration system, reverse osmosis or um, a portable filtration system, I think is important. You don't want to get into a system where, for example i I forget where it was recently, but there was a boil water um advisory. alert right? Probably advisory.
0: maui I, I actually I think in Maui they said that even if you boiled the water, it still wasn't safe
1: right so but but let's say there's a boil water advisory, okay well, what if you are on a natural gas system and you don't have that it's it's cut off you don't have your own uh, so how are you supposed to boil water so Um, let's say that you're in those extremes and the only thing you have, um, as a prepper is some sort of filtration system. Well, you're already way ahead of the game. Um, just having that. So I would say just starting with something simple like that, you you know, we're not talking windmills and and, and gallons of water when you live in a small apartment or something like that, but just having some way to filter your water and know that your water is safe, I think is important.
0: Yeah, I mean, uh, water treatment is a a very complex subject. Um, So, you know, there's a a couple big parts to it, filtration and purification. And, you know, uh, it's wise that you have a a reverse osmosis system simply based on the fact that uh, almost all municipal water supplies in the country now have elements of PFAS forever chemicals. So chemicals have no half-life, they're all extremely carcinogenic i know in our area here uh, we've had this ongoing problem still have this ongoing problem with our dogs getting cancer we've never had it anywhere else Um, our vet has lost a couple of his dogs from cancer and it turns out that there are some really bad chemicals in our water that are you know hundreds of times what the real safe limits are not what the epa says but what you know scientists and doctors say is, is a safe level and so all those chemicals it's i'm impressed that you went with ro simply because when you're filtering water like you have a filter you're filtering out particulates but when particulates dissolve and you like you mentioned microns for how small they are the only way to get them out is a reverse osmosis system where you're hitting the water with sound waves and driving the particulates through a membrane to the other side to get them out of that water so Uh, kudos for you know uh, being on the ro bandwagon then the next part usually to it is that you have you know a charcoal filter or something like that that can filter out some bacteria uh you know some forms of you know viruses and whatnot Um, i I had properties i had a property that I, i built on top of a farmer's field and the water was just horrible because of everything that had leached through the ground and uh, this is going back years ago this is like 25 years ago and even then i spent twelve thousand dollars on the water so i had to have everything from a, a reverse osmosis unit to an oxygenator to uv lights to a chlorinator to particulate filters the whole nine yards so um yeah if if so personally on the straws just my opinion i think the 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 sawyers are the best i think they're the best performing ones we've done a fair bit of testing they seem to be pretty consistent. I like the Grails. I don't know if you've you've you know seen the Grails at all, but uh, the the I think it's Geo something anyway. The the Grail Geo one where you push it down it takes about thirty seconds to yes. filter and purify yes. the water. It it they work really well.
1: All right, yeah, and it it looks like a water bottle sort of right. Yes. So. Yep. I just bought one of those. I love it.
0: Yeah. I was um, going to say, if you haven't used it, you're going to like it. Oh my
1: gosh. It's, it's the best thing. Um, I think it's, it goes in all of my backpacks, it, like a uh, bug out bag or backcountry stuff, just having it around the house. I, I think it's super important. Um, You know, I, I tend to go on tangents. <laughs> so <laughs> I apologize, but, but nope, one of the, go things, ahead. one of the things that you talked about is, you know, oh, well, the government says this is safe or that is safe. Well, um, one thing that I have learned uh, over the course of my years and particularly during COVID, one of the things I was most horrified by early on was when the government came out with recommendations saying, you don't need a mask. And I'm like, you know, I'm a doctor and I know what airborne, uh, airborne, contagions uh, are stopped by and, and what they're not. And then they said, well, just a cloth mask. And my first thought was they're telling people that because they're trying to protect the supply chain of N95s, because that is the only thing that okay. is going to stop this. And, um, and sure enough, N95s, we were wearing our N95s one of them for a week at a time. Well, at some point, you know, you don't have the same seal and everything else, but the reason that that happened and they even admitted that later was that, well, we knew that there weren't enough N95s in the supply chain for our healthcare providers and that sort of thing. So the lesson that that taught me was that, you know, a lot of times you're given information, not because it's the right information, but because it is trying to, um, control behavior or promote behavior or whatever. And so when it comes to my health and my survival, I'm not going to listen to uh, a recommendation that may or may not be accurate.
0: And that's that's a really good example, Jen. Um, I remember when they first, you know, started mandating masks. Of course, we didn't have that here in Florida. But, uh, you know, you'd see videos of people in the wintertime in the Northeast and you can see their breath as they're breathing through whatever masks they were wearing. And I'm thinking to myself, man, if you can't stop, you know, water droplets essentially going through your mask, it's not stopping some microscopic virus from passing through it, you know? So, but you know, that we, if we go down that rabbit hole, we'll probably get the podcast will get kicked off of Spotify and Amazon and Apple. They'll they'll nuke us if we go too far down that one, but <laughs>
1: So what I would say is that um I think that in in making your preparations, make your preparations based on um based on what you think is right for you and your family. We'll just leave it at that
0: good advice, yep, good advice, okay, so with number one is prep for the most likely scenario, like an emergency in your area number two, make sure that you have you know a water supply that that's safe and and plenty of it. Uh, what would you say number three is? What's the next step?
1: Communication. So, you know, it's funny. I was thinking about this this morning before we started. And like one of the very first things that you learn in school or whatever is when you have a fire drill or some emergency, there's some rally point or even in the military, there's some rally point where, okay, something just hit the fan. We all need to meet up in a certain spot And we need to account for each other and make sure that everyone's there. And and so, you know, you may be at work. I may be at work when something bad happens, some big earthquake up in Washington and comms may be down. So what is my husband and I's plan to make sure that we're both okay, that we're both going to make it to a certain spot and, and be able to account for each other? What's our plan? What's our comms plan? What's our rally point? That sort of thing.
0: That that's good. I I assume, and I was wrong. I assumed that you were going to say food before communications, but actually, in that scenario that you just pointed pointed out, the communications aspect and planning ahead with a rally point makes a lot more sense. So uh, you got it again, on
1: and it's <laughs> and again, it's going to be individualized. You know, our comms plan for Washington State is different than our comms plan here in Nevada when we're both, you know, together. So in Washington, it's actually pretty complex in the Puget Sound because there are bridges um, and, and a lot of water. Um, There is a lot more in the way of um, vegetation and really, Mm -hmm. really big trees. And so for me, In my in my car, I chose my car so that I would have the ability to um, to pull trees out of the way. So I have like um, on my car, I've you know I've got a hitch and I've I've got a, I don't even know what you call it, like a toe strap, so that okay. if there's yep. something down um, and I need to get through a certain area, I have the ability to cut something or to drag something out of my way so that I can get out of an area because it's a huge issue in Washington state. We're out in a rural area with, with 100, 100 foot tall trees and trees go down all the time. And like, how do we get out if we need to or get to someone if we need to? Versus here in Nevada, you know, the biggest problem is flash flooding and, um, and roads not being clear or washed out. Interesting. totally different Totally different.
0: so obviously we don't have video for the podcast but you can see this that uh, that's the view out of my uh brother-in-law and uh sister-in-law's place that's mount rainer in their backyard puget sound that's the puget sound water down below so
1: that's actually that's actually pretty close to my view in washington
0: <laughs> it's a small world isn't it that is but when we were there we actually you know put together, uh, you know, an emergency plan. Like if something happened, if we ended up in nuclear war, you know, what are our choices? You know, obviously the, the best choice is to hunker down with family there, but we've got family here in the Southeast. We've got dogs and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, we actually did a video on it. How, if the shit hit the fan there, how would we get back home here? And, uh, you know, and- be a monumental task for sure.
1: Monumental. Yeah. So, you know, getting back to the comms and rally point and that sort of thing. I think that, you know, if you're starting out in prepping and just, you know, we were talking about what are you prepping for? I think that, I mean, it's, it's a multi-tier thing, right? So what's the most important thing right now? What should I do right now? And that would be, you know, making sure that you are able to get your family together you have a water supply um, and you're able to communicate with one another and we will get to food in a second, but I mean, I think that you, you, you have to start one step at a time. And I know that survival dispatch is really good this way, but like, what's the most important thing first? Okay. So natural disaster, maybe, maybe civil unrest, maybe, you know, um, um, a uh, nuclear nuclear issue or a dirty okay. bomb, who knows? But it, you have to like have a priority list and because you, you can't go out and, and prep for everything all at once. The, no, I don't think most people have those resources, but you can start with the basics and kind of work your way towards that.
0: Yeah, I mean, that's a good point. So I just, I always relate back to hurricane season just because that's what we're familiar with and we've been through Lord knows how many, Hurricanes. So, you know, when we're preparing here in the Southeast, we, if we get hit with a hurricane, we know the power's going out like no yep. fans or buts. It, it's only a question of how long it's going to be gone for. You know, if it's a major, you know, like Harvey was a cat five back in 2005, we had no power for three weeks, but there were areas around her had no power for three months. Right. So having something power related was really important. And then we learned a really hard lesson during Hurricane Matthew. We had plenty of drinking water stashed, but what we had never gone through was that we had a sewer main and a water main burst beside each other Mm. and they turned the municipal water off. It wasn't like a boil advisory. They just turned it off because it was so contaminated. And now all of a sudden, simple things like how do you flush the toilet becomes an issue. So right. we had the we had water to drink and we had enough water to drink, but we didn't have enough water for all the other things. You know, we didn't have enough water to to bathe. We didn't have enough water for the, you know, the commode. We didn't have enough water for cooking, you know, so on and so forth. And that That's- that three weeks without water was worse than any power outage I've ever been through.
1: So one of the things that we do in advance of, if you have time, in advance of um of some sort of a, a situation like that is we fill all of our sinks and all of our tubs. Yeah. And um, you know, the way you flush your toilet is uh the way the toilet works is the tank behind the toilet fills up. You flush it and that's what, you know, that's what flushes the toilet and then it right. fills back up. And so you know if you have a a some sort of a container like a an old milk container or whatever you go to the tub that you filled up and you want to fill everything every sink every tub every everything and um and then you can use that to flush your toilets but I, um
0: well that's great advice and and you know we didn't that wasn't top of mind for us and i think it was 2017 when 2015 or sorry 2016 2017 when michael hit us but we didn't have tubs full of water so we made a mistake there um,
1: lesson learned right i mean that's hardness. how yes hard lesson um <laughs> yeah, i can't can't tell you how many of those i've had in life
0: <laughs> and if a, you
1: live through if you live through it then you learn but the sure the, point is, the point is that you you know you want to learn from people who have had those hard lessons and not have them yourself yeah. So fill your tubs.
0: <laughs> there's <laughs> a, and a and for the life of me, I can't remember it, but there's a there's a essentially a liner that you can put in your bathtub before you fill it with water. And that way if your drain has a slight leak or anything, you don't lose all that water that you put in there and they're yeah. not very expensive. Um Good point. but yeah, that's that's great advice as well. So all right, so just quickly recap again. So first thing we want to take into consideration is what's the most likely type of emergency we're gonna face. The next next thing is water the next thing is communications so that we can you know the entire family can rendezvous uh, at some particular location what what's the next consideration in your opinion
1: you know and and i'm going to surprise you again um because yes food is very important but you can live without it for a while i would say exposure and um exposure is going to kill you before not having food is going to kill you so Depending on where you are, time of year, it could be heat exposure or it could be cold exposure. Um, and so I, I would say that's the next issue.
0: And you're killing me, Jen. I mean, my my family heritage is Greek. We love to eat. And you're completely <laughs> ignoring the food element here. It's, it's just it stabbing me in the heart here. But uh, yeah, that's interesting. We have a, uh, one of our guys on the Survival Dispatch team, J.J. Morris, was uh I'm trying to think of like the exact term. He was essentially a, a SAR tech in the special ops world, um, and he mentioned something to me that I, I the the temperature range surprised me. He said that the the uh, most frequent temperature range where people suffer hypothermia is between 30 and 50 degrees, and I would have expected if you're it not wet less.
1: if you're not wet.
0: Okay. I would have expected the temperature to be lower than that, but it was still, it was a interesting comment he made, but there were a lot of, he had a lot of good points to make, like, as far as if you're on the ground, you're going to lose more weight, more heat than, you know, if you have some insulation, so on and so forth. But yeah, so, I mean, essentially exposure slash shelter, right? Like having some means of shelter. So if, if let's just say the rendezvous point is somewhere other than your home, because the home is, inaccessible maybe it's flooded uh you know maybe there was an earthquake whatever the case may be so uh, give give me an idea like if if the shit really hit the fan in say washington state um what would your contingency plan then be to mitigate exposure
1: so as an example um i think that the likelihood of our home having some really serious damage um, from a major earthquake is pretty high. Okay. Um, and so, uh, we, we actually have a trailer that we use for camping and that sort of thing. That is a great, uh, a great backup. Um, we could live in that for, for quite a while and, and be okay. Um, and, and at least have, you know, some heat, um, a way to cool ourselves and, um, and be out of the elements.
0: Yeah, um, there's a company called Survival Retreat Consulting, uh, former Marine, um, wanted to escape the San Francisco area in the early 2000s, went looking for somebody to help him, you know, to find a a location for his family and whatnot, and discovered that there were no real subject matter experts as far as, you know, looking for something that would qualify as, you know, both off the grid, safe, all, all kinds of stuff. So he started his business. And um, that that's that's interesting because he mentioned to me people think when when they hear his company name, they think of wealthy people looking to build these, you know, uh, shelters, bunkers for the apocalypse that are millions of dollars. And he said, you know, he has all kinds of clients where they have a twenty five thousand dollar budget and he finds them an acre where they can put their RV or their trailer. And that now they have their bug out location, their escape location. And it's not just the ultra wealthy so
1: and you know it's interesting too um i'm sure you know more about this than me you know more about pretty much everything than me but <laughs> uh,
0: yeah not not really
1: um but i know that there are a lot of properties uh around the country that are not developable you can put like electricity and um and water on them you're not allowed you're not allowed to build structures but it's a place they're really inexpensive too where you can bring your your camper whatever you have electricity you have um water access and and maybe a dump station or something because that's all you need to live forever in a little camper
0: yeah I, as far as i know the the primary requirement is that whatever your structure is or whatever is has to be on wheels.
1: Okay, that's okay. That's what it is.
0: Yeah, it's it's essentially like the tiny homes. Like the tiny homes are typically considered trailers. They might put a skirt around them, but behind that skirt, they have wheels, and therefore, you don't need a building permit for them.
1: Oh, that's, perfect.
0: That's kind of like the general rule of thumb, is my understanding for that sort of thing.
1: And um, they and and the property's inexpensive because it's not developable. Correct, and, but, but yet you can still have. You know it kind of essential services um on them and if if all you had was you know just some dirt that's great but even better if you just had a concrete slab yeah uh, that's even better
0: so uh this wasn't my idea i wish i could remember who it was to give them credit but a person basically said if you live in the city which 80 plus percent of americans do and you don't have a bug out location, go rent a a storage facility, you know, like whatever, a 10 by 20 storage thing and and stock it up full of your supplies, food, you know, stuff to defend yourself with, so on and so forth. Um, Do it in a rural location that is far enough away from the city that, you know, you can get some solitude, but not so far away that you couldn't get there in emergency try to meet some of the locals in the area and then yeah. if the shit ever hit the fan you can bug out to your storage location you've got shelter you know you should have the means for you know solar power or whatever something to generate power you've got food stocked up water stocked up so it may not be very glamorous but not having a bug out location versus having a simple storage facility that's a couple hundred dollars a month um is much more preferable than having nothing at all because i think like you know, Hollywood aside, if, if we end up into some sort of, you know, if we end up in a nuclear war or something like that, and you live in an urban environment and you, you know, you survive the initial onslaught, you're probably gonna end up a refugee in a FEMA camp. And that's probably the last pace that anybody in their right mind would want to be. So oh, yeah. if, if you could get yeah. out of Dodge, uh, even do like a simple storage facility, it'd be much more preferable than being a refugee under control of FEMA.
1: And, you know, the other thing that we've talked about this in the past, and this kind of goes back to the comms and just basic planning, and that is, you know, having people within your community that you are sort of partnered with
0: mm-hmm. in an
1: emergency. So um, giving our two different examples, and I think this is great because our two different locations are so completely different, but, you know, in Washington, we're in a really rural area and. You know, everyone's on a six acre lot and it's not, you can't subdivide it. So we're all kind of spread out a little bit, but we're all kind of like-minded. And, you know, when you see these natural disasters, whether it's Maui or, um, or earthquakes or hurricanes or tornadoes, it, it always seems so random, like one place is hit and other places aren't. And there's like, you know, one, one structure standing in Lahaina or, you know, in a, in a, so you're you're basically diversifying assets, and um you know we would we would of course, welcome anyone who needed a shelter in our home in in Washington if we're the house that's still standing. but also, you know, everyone's got different supplies and um and and we're all kind of like-minded, so we have diversified our assets and our locations, and we're good that way. In the other location, we're in a very um, suburban, houses close together kind of thing. We know all of our neighbors, you know, we know that they're watching out for us. We're watching out for them. And, you know, if there were a civil unrest kind of situation, you know, you're not one person trying to defend your home. you're, You're multiple people in a block defending an area, which is way better, obviously.
0: Yeah. Um, you know, we're both the same age and, you know, so we come from a time when it was not uncommon for all neighborhoods to be like you just described where the the neighbors know each other and they watch out for each other and stuff like that. But, you know, I I think there's instances of communities like that around the decline. They're less frequent than when we were younger. And uh, you know, I can, speak as far as florida is concerned here um there's a there's a different culture in the northeast than there is in the southeast and so you know there's been this invasion of of people from the northeast here in florida and uh, you know they're not they're not open to being friendly with their neighbors that they you know they drive by most of the time they don't even wave they Hit their clicker to open their garage door. They go inside. They close it, and that's it. You don't see them again, sort of thing. <laughs> and it's 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 a it's a different deal um, where we we just don't seem to have that level of community that used to exist. It's a shame, uh, especially if something really bad happens. But uh, anyway, before we wrap up, Jen. So you've given all kinds of great advice on what people should should focus on. So the the last thing that people should focus on is what.
1: Oh, you know what? I want to say food, but then, but I want to say.
0: Dang it, you're killing me.
1: (laughs) I know, I know, know, I'm so sorry. But let me just throw one thing in before we talk about food, because it is really, obviously. I would say other emergency supplies that you need to keep you alive. If you have a severe allergy to bees or Mm. whatever, you need to make sure you've got your EpiPens. and, And if you are reliant upon medications for your health, you need to make sure that you, you know, have a supply of those things. Um, Just like, you know, you need to make sure that you're not going to die from heat stroke or Mm. hypothermia or whatever. Um, You know, those are immediate needs, like you need to make sure that those immediate needs are met. So once those immediate needs, water, medications, shelter are met, then we're talking about food and and making sure that you have a food supply and you know the the government will tell you you need to make sure that you have 72 hours i i beg to differ i think it's a lot longer than that um so uh so let's talk food prep
0: well i mean i love food and we can finish up on that but i do have a couple quick comments to make i on the medication side um, uh, I, I think that, uh, having some way to generate electricity is important because I think yes. of diabetics and being able yes. to keep their insulin refrigerated and, and whatnot yeah. is a pretty important consideration. So if somebody has, you know, has diabetes that they should be, uh, you know, making sure that they have not just a stockpile of insulin, but the means to power a small refrigerator, uh, to keep it cool. And then the other thing I would mention is that, uh, you know we're friends with the guys over at medicalpreparedness.net and they've got a slew of FDA approved meds they don't carry anything like controlled substances so there's no hydrocodone or any any of that sort of stuff but it's all your regular stuff like benazepril for your blood pressure and whatnot um it it's kind of a gray area with the FDA but uh, if you don't have a stockpile of meds you got to do what's best you got to look out for number 1 uh, you go to medicalpreparedness.net, dot net. You send them a picture of your scripts or your pill bottles, so that they can do their due diligence and contact your doctor. They're not just going to ship you a bunch of meds, you know, because you put an order in. But it's it's about the only way that I know of that you can get more than a ninety day supply. So at the end of the day, like I said, you got to look out for number one.
1: Yeah, and you know, from a medical perspective, what are the what? Why do people die um, in natural disasters? one is they get sick from um contaminated water two right. they get sick from injuries or you know they step on on things that are under the water and they get a really bad infection that can kill you so you know just basic things yeah. um basic antibiotics basic wound care issues, Um, the water. And I would say one other thing, generators are pretty inexpensive if you're talking about just, you know, refrigeration, heating and cooling. And again, that gets back to exposure. If you live in a super hot place and grandma is there, well, you know, the elderly and the young and people with bad health conditions are particularly sensitive to heat everyone is sensitive to cold. If you don't, you know, obviously, you know, taking care of those things, a generator is really inexpensive. So I agree with you.
0: Five, six, $700. You can get a generator that'll get you by the, the one important distinction there is that of course, if you have gasoline generators, you know, every 90 days or so, or even less, you have to rotate your fuel stocks because you you can stabilize it, but you're still going to lose octane and, Once the octane level gets to a certain point, then you start looking at detonation, which is essentially melts your aluminum pistons, whatnot. But uh, there's a company out of California uh, called ALP, ALP Generators. They make a thousand watt propane generator and it's $529 on Amazon. We're not an affiliate. I'm not mentioning this name because we get paid. The advantage to propane is you can put as many of them tanks as you want, stockpile them up. They never go bad. You don't have to rotate them like you have to do with, with gasoline. So propane is a better option than gas is just from a maintaining your fuel standpoint is concerned. And if people have the disposable income and they can afford a, a battery backup as well, the other advantages is, is that you run your generator for an hour in the morning to, to, you know, top up your batteries and then you run it for an hour in the evening. And that should be enough to get you by it. You don't have to run it 24 hours a day. So your requirement to stockpile fuel goes down as a result of that as well. And, you know, if you're careful with your fridge, I mean, here, you know, people losing food is frequent during hurricane season when power outages and what. But realistically, if you can turn your fridge on for 45 minutes a day and you're not in and out of it constantly, it will keep your food fresh for 24 hours at a time. So, yep.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: So speaking of fridge, talk to me, fridges, talk to me about food, my favorite subject.
1: (laughs) Mine too. So, (laughs) you know, so basically what you need is you need shelf-stable foods. Um, We actually, you know, we, we, we love eating. We love cooking. I, I happen to be plant-based, so it's a little bit easier for me. I don't need to, you know, keep meats and things like that frozen, but, um, but we have a ton of food and we have them in food grade, um, buckets mm. and, um, Good point. and, you know, we, we, we seal our bags, we, you know, suck the air out of them and seal them. Um, and I mean, they have, they could, they could sit there for hundreds of years. We have all sorts of grains, all sorts of legumes. Um, nice. we also keep some things for trading like sugar um sugar, okay. alcohol, believe it or not. Yeah, um, alcohol those, in
0: particular. Yeah.
1: Yeah, those are big trading items. So we, you know, we keep a fair amount of that. If you want, you, you know, if you're thinking about wanting to have vegetables or greens, you can sprout seeds or you can um I love this. It's really easy to preserve vegetables and get probiotics by just, you know, all you do is you mix a bunch of vegetables with salt and um, and you you put them in mason jars and, um, y- you know, once once they ferment and you keep them refrigerated, you've got your veggies for pretty much months and months and months. That's a great um, job. If you want to use the food dehydrator to dehydrate meals or dehydrate fruit, you have that. I mean, there's just so many ways um, that you have that you can make shelf stable foods for really cheap. Mm or you can buy the you know the kits there are i know that you're familiar with a lot of of companies that make the the prepared meals um i think it's a lot cheaper to do it the other way but it is yeah but both ways are are totally acceptable
0: yeah i mean we're really good friends with the guys at nutrient survival and uh you know I like their products. It's not just because of the shelf life, because they're not laden with chemicals. Right. So the downside to that is, is, you know, we've, we've gotten emails from some people saying, you know, I can't believe that you guys recommend nutrient survival. You know, it doesn't taste good. And I think to myself, well, you know what, if you're eating processed food and fast food, yeah, it's not going to taste great because it's healthy. It's not full of chemicals. You know, there's not, right. a, there's not a ton of sugar and other chemicals in it. And, you know, it's not going to be compatible with your palate. But if you're eating that other crap, you know, that's just one more, you know, knock against you as far as your health and conditioning is concerned. And we don't preach about this at Survival Dispatch. We've had offline conversations on this. It's a personal decision to decide whether or not someone wants to exercise or whether or not somebody wants to eat a clean diet. Doesn't change the reality of the situation that if we end up in a really bad situation like a nuclear war. Uh, those people who are not in decent health will be the first ones to kick the bucket.
1: Well, you know, it's interesting because the community that we are in is definite definitely has the bent that, you know, they don't want big companies or governments or whatever to tell them what to do, how to think or whatever. But um, I would just make a small suggestion that big companies have definitely, um, had a huge influence on people, whether they know it or not, in terms Ooh. of diet and in terms yeah. of what they're eating and what their taste is. A lot of the the chemicals and things that, that are put in foods are put in the foods to get you addicted to those foods. And once you get away from that and you start eating cleanly and you actually start tasting the food you actually are able to taste the food again and mm. you know if i eat a lot of processed foods i actually i feel really sick now right. and it doesn't taste good to me so Agreed. you know i i would just throw that out there i'm not right. preaching eat what you want um but but just understand that those processed foods are processed for a reason
0: i i mean there's an old adage garbage in garbage out so yep. you know, I'll leave it at that as well. But I will mention so. So you just really hit on a very interesting topic that if a you know these large companies are recommending that you do something, there's probably a reason behind it, right? And usually it it relates back to money in one way or another. Um, Always. I can only remember one company. So it was recently, you know, discovered that Coca Cola and a bunch of other companies i think hershey's might have been one of them have been the the primary uh financier uh money people whatever you want to call it behind the whole fat shaming movement so in other words trying basically planting this seed that it's discriminatory to say people who are fat aren't healthy and so on and so forth and how it's okay to be you know, just because you're overweight doesn't mean you're unhealthy and all the crap that goes with that. And it's all just complete bullshit. Like it's, it's, it's propaganda. This is, this is beyond just misinformation. It's outright propaganda so that people who consume their products and get morbidly obese can feel good about themselves because, well, you know, we've got this whole, don't fat shame me, you know?
1: Well, I would say a couple of things. One is that um, fat is not benign tissue. Fat is actually endocrine tissue that is working in a way that is not meant to work in the human body, um, making you insulin resistant Mm -hmm. uh, and certainly making moving around um, efficiently difficult. You know, it's funny, I'm a really big cave diver and technical diver. And when I have all of my Gear on my gear literally weighs as much as I do. Wow, I'm like 115 pounds, and imagine making me 230 pounds at five five, which is what a lot of people are walking around at. Yeah, and I walk around and I think, Holy, ho- holy mackerel! Like, I can, you know, I, I waddle in and out of the water the best <laughs> I can, but I'm not moving fast. I'll tell you, yeah, and I think, I think <laughs> man, like, imagine you know, walking around like that all the time, it would be horrible. And just from that standpoint alone, just, you know, feeling good and being able to move and um, and be able to do the things in life that you want to do is important. But even more than that, it is not benign tissue That mm-hmm. that fat is acting as endocrine tissue in a bad way. Um, to make you less efficient to make your insulin less efficient and has all sorts of problems associated with it Um, and it has nothing to do with how you look it has to do with how your body is functioning
0: i'm I'm not suggesting that you know anybody hurt somebody's feelings you know or attack other people i'm not suggesting that at all i'm just stating that this whole misinformation, propaganda crap saying it's okay to be morbidly obese. It's not okay. There are consequences. You know, it's like everything else in life. First thing you do is you decide what you want. Second thing you do is decide what you're willing to give up to get it. So, you know, if you want to eat 10,000 calories a day of fast food, recognize that the choice you're making is you're, you're decreasing your quality of life and you're decreasing the longevity of your life.
1: You know, I, I really do believe that as a physician, my primary role, my only role really, is as an educator to teach people about themselves, about their health conditions, about their body, and to let them make the choice. And I am I am a live and let live kind of person. I am a you make your own choices, but you know, anymore, um boy, you get in so much trouble just for telling let like as an example um, 80% of adults at some point will have back pain or back trouble. Right. And if you're morbidly obese and you're carrying around all that weight, you're not helping your back problem, but to actually tell a patient, look, you know, I think the very first thing you need to think about is, you know, losing weight, um, maybe doing some, some physical activity, some stretching, some physical therapy. That's not what people want to hear, but sure. it's truth And I I just feel like it's my obligation to tell people the truth and then let them make their own decision, whatever that is. I'm not going to judge you on your decision. Um, I I just want you to have the information.
0: Yeah. Well, I think I, I agree with everything that you said. I also think that that speaks to the fact that we don't know what we don't know. Like people just, they don't know what they don't know sort of thing. And we had an offline conversation, which I thought was really ironic where you know, Tony Blauer's a friend of mine, world-famous self-defense expert, travels extensively, um, has been training forever and a day. And he tries to stop four or five, six times a day on the hour to do something like 25 push-ups. And by doing 25 push-ups, if he does that four times a day, you know, that's 100 push-ups a day. And if he does it five days a week, that's 500 push-ups in the week. And if he does it 50 weeks of the year, that's 25,000 push-ups. And it's just a, a matter of taking, you know, literally taking 60 seconds out of, you know, an hour to do some push-ups and then getting the cumulative effect. And, you know, I mean, nothing but respect for all of your accomplishments, Jen. And so I shouldn't be surprised that you're the one person who said to me, yeah, I've been covering the same thing in my medical Mondays. You know, I'm really impressed that you're doing the exact same thing that Tony does. And yet neither one of you have ever crossed paths with each other. It's, uh, (laughs) good right. validation he'll be really happy to hear that by the way because he'll be very respectful of your opinion as well
1: well you know i i do i have great sympathy you know i um i feel bad for people who have gotten really out of shape and they don't know where to start they don't want to go to the mm. gym because you know they're they may be embarrassed or um or they feel like it's hopeless it is not hopeless it is never hopeless there's a lot of great research that shows you don't have to get all of your exercise all at once, um, because it, it is painful to re- to start and sure get back into shape, but you can do these little exercise snacks for a minute or two every hour. And it adds up. And, and the research shows that you can, you don't have to do it all at once. It increases your mood and your fitness and your focus and your productivity. Um, there's a lot of research on it actually. And it's a great place to start. Just, you know, start one minute every hour.
0: I I think it's a phenomenal place to start simply based on the fact that um, at 30 days, it's it's the beginnings of becoming a habit. And at 90 days, it's deeply ingrained as a habit. So it's not even something that you have to think of or to make an effort to do. By the time you get to 90 days, two things will have happened you would will have developed this habit that doesn't require you to get highly motivated to do number one but number two 90 days worth of work doing a little here and a little there and the cumulative effect you will notice a difference the way your clothes fit in 90 days like i tell people don't don't jump on the scale it doesn't matter what the freaking scale says that right. has nothing to do with your body composition and don't calculate your body mass index it's a bullshit it, you know, as a, as a competitive athlete for most of my adult life, you know, I get health insurance, and they're like, "Oh, you're morbidly obese." Look, I, I'm I'm five seven, two hundred and twenty pounds with four percent body fat. I'm not I'm not obese at all. So the BMI is, and I'm not that right now. Actually, I'm down to I think about one ninety right now. But my point is, is that don't worry about body mass index. Don't worry about what the scale says that the, there's two really easy ways to tell you're making progress. One, you'll feel a whole heck of a lot better. Um, you know, I had bilateral pulmonary embolisms after a really, really bad surgery, and it almost cost me my life. And so the bottom 25% of my lungs is just solid white scar tissue now when they image me. And we have a home in the, in the mountains. And I was struggling... Walking up our private driveway to the end to go to the neighbors and stuff like that until I started actually, you know, doing my running gun training. Now I do it. I don't even break a sweat. But my my point is, is this is that you'll feel a whole lot better. So that's that's number one and number two. You'll put your clothes on and go, holy crap! Like, I you know, these were tight shorts at one point in time. Now I got to have a a belt on and the belt wraps halfway around me for crying like one and a half times around sort of thing. So. Definitely. that That's another whole subject. We should probably like the next time we get together, Jen, even though we don't preach to people, you don't, Survival Dispatch doesn't as far as activity and health is concerned. We do know that somewhere around say 17 to 20% of our audience and people in general are keenly interested in that topic. Maybe it's time that we actually do a, do a podcast on that and, you know, try and, uh, you know, encourage people. You don't have to go to a gym. You don't have to work like a dog. You don't have to train for two hours a day. Just do a couple of little right things. And before you know it, good things will happen.
1: I would love to do that. I am, I I will never preach to anyone, but you know, I, I love to help people. That's why I'm a doctor and I feel like I have a lot to offer. And if someone is interested, um, I would never, ever shame anyone. That's not, I, I, that's pretty awful. Um, But I do think that I have a lot to offer to help people and it's so much easier than people think. So much easier.
0: So I think that uh, when we're done recording this, I'm going to reach out to Tony Blauer and make an introduction between the two of you. And then I'm going to ask Tony if he'll come on a a podcast with us next month with the three of us. And let's talk about just how easy it is actually to to start doing some of this stuff and, and how it's not as hard to improve one's station in life as people think it is.
1: Absolutely, 100%. That would be great. Let's do it.
0: All right, sounds good. All right, well, listen, Jen, I appreciate your time. Uh, thank you very much. Look forward to the next time.
1: All right, see you next month.